Hello, welcome to Theory Lab. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Cotter of the American Cancer Society's Research Department. Uh, we've funded almost $5 billion of cancer research, but I think if I spoke to each of our grantees, I may not find one as friendly as Dr. Marina Holes of New York Medical College. I really enjoyed talking with her. Um, but not just because she's friendly. I wanted to talk with her, uh, one, because she's a uh, Know, leading breast cancer researcher. She's had some papers that are real benchmarks in the field, including a new one, which we talked about. Also wanted to talk to her um, because she's a professor of cell biology and anatomy at New York Medical College and also the dean of the graduate school of basic medical sciences there. So she's doing a lot of mentoring. She's done a lot of mentoring in her career and had, as I expected, some really nice thoughts to share uh, advice for young scientists, especially women scientists. So this was a fun conversation. Um, let's hop into it now. So you're at New York Medical College now, and you had a um, recent paper related to breast cancer that I want to ask you about. But I was looking online. I want to take you back to 2005. I think you were maybe a PhD student at Harvard at the time. Um, yes. I definitely was not a PhD student <laughs> at Harvard at the time, but um, you had a paper, looks like it was published in Cell at the time, and it's been cited almost 700 times. Looks like a lot of those citations came in the past two years, and I'm wondering why is it still getting attention 14 years later? What was it about this paper that was so um, enduring? Oh, that that is really a good question. I was... Uh recently at a conference where my former PhD advisor uh, gave a talk, and he started the talk by uh, presenting this paper. Um, and the reason for that is that what we uncovered uh, was um, really, um, uh, I guess, a, a revolutionary almost. Uh, it was a, a breakthrough, and I, I didn't realize at the time because I was a PhD student and uh, you don't always see the full perspective of what you're working on. But um, we're working on how translation initiation is regulated. And translation initiation is really the beginning of the protein synthesis process in cells. Um, and at the time, we thought that the um, process is regulated, but not in the way that we thought. Uh, and we really uncovered that there are specific signals that allow uh, translation initiation to be fine-tuned in response to various signals that the cell receives. And that laid the new foundation for the work of uh, John Planis, my PhD advisor at the time, that continued um, in uh, the years to come, and since then he published several additional studies that were all grounded in that uh, 2005 cell paper. So at this conference last fall, he presented this paper, and um, there was a person sitting next to me, and she said, isn't this amazing that 15 years later we're still talking about that one paper? And it, it really was. It, it was really a proud moment for me, and um, I was really honored that um, our work really made an impact and laid this foundation that is very solid. So that was that was amazing. Right? That's remarkable. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder, can you talk a bit about how, how does it relate to cancer? Um, what we uncovered is that the regulation of translation initiation is a very dynamic process. 
um, and we knew that many of the same pathways that are uh, changed in cancer are involved in that process, but we didn't really connect the, the dots mechanistically. How does a signal that um, changes um, in cancer also inputs into regulation of protein synthesis? And we were able to really uh, uncover step by step how it happens. Uh, and we now know that many of the same changes that are um, important in cancer also impact protein synthesis because when a cell grows and divides inappropriately in cancer, it requires a lot of protein synthesis. So many of these changes that cause a cancer cell to divide uncontrollably also make that cell very dependent on the production of proteins that are needed for growth. Um, so th that connection, even though it's basic cell biology, is extremely important for cancer. And independently, we also continued working on that story. And in my lab, that um, I started my lab almost 12 years ago, um, a little over 12 years ago, we focused specifically on breast cancer. And about 70% of uh, breast cancers are, are diagnosed as hormone-dependent. Um, specifically, they're dependent on the hormone estrogen. And I asked, how does estrogen control this process? And this is what our recent paper is about. Really, it's about how estrogen controls protein synthesis in the cells. Uh, and it, again, it's uh, very gratifying to me that um, a story from 2005 continues to produce these offshoots and uh, projects that uh, really expand our understanding of how protein synthesis is regulated and how it is dysregulated in cancer. And in my lab, we study how it's dysregulated in breast cancer specifically. How interesting you see the through line from this paper back in you know 2005 or whenever it was, all the way to this recent paper that you just published. And kind of, it makes you think like what papers are going to be published this year that maybe the PhD student who published them thinks like, oh, here's a neat finding and doesn't really realize how um, transformational it is going to prove to be. But let's get to this paper, this new paper of yours. Um, mm -hmm. How would you explain this new paper to somebody who's not a scientist? Oh, oh that, that is a difficult task, but I'll try. Um, so the, the way that um, we uh, view estrogen is that estrogen is a hormone, and what it does, it promotes a proliferation or growth of various cells. Um, and in breast cancer, what happens is that um, there are breast cancer cells that become very dependent on estrogen for growth. And estrogen really fuels their growth. It causes them to divide inappropriately. Um, and what we know uh, about estrogen action is that estrogen interacts with a protein in the cells called estrogen receptor. And together, they form this complex that regulates gene expression in cells. Essentially, it um, tells the cells to initiate this program to divide and also to uh, do other processes that are cancer-related. So estrogen so is really important in cell growth and also just basic happenings in the cell. Yeah, of many cells that are normal in, in, um, 
in people's bodies, right? In men also and uh, in women especially. Um, and what we found is that in addition to this role as regulator of gene expression in cells, estrogen and estrogen receptor also regulate protein synthesis. Um, and it really explains how one um, hormone regulates all steps of production of a protein. Um, we originally thought that the main step where the regulation happens is at the level of DNA, of regulating how genes are turned on. And what we realized is that this is only one of the steps. And the second step where estrogen also plays a role is after the genes are turned on, estrogen also regulates how proteins are synthesized. And proteins are really the products of genes. And they facilitate um, many of the actions of the hormones in the cells. Um, and this, again, connected to our original finding from 2005 that a lot of the regulation of gene expression actually happens at the level of protein synthesis. Um, and we found that estrogen also similarly regulates the whole program of gene expression starting at DNA and continuing at the level of protein synthesis as well. Um, so that's why we, we really, really enjoyed finding this. Yeah, and, and so in your paper, you note that around two-thirds of all breast cancer cases are estrogen receptor positive. So what does that mean? Um, so when we say that about two-thirds uh, or 70%, the, uh, sometimes we round this number up, of breast cancers are uh, estrogen receptor positive, that means that they have upregulation of the, the expression of this receptor, of estrogen receptor, and that's part of the diagnosis of breast cancer. So when there is a diagnosis of breast cancer and a biopsy is done, uh, there is a specific staining that is done on the cells, uh, and um, we try to detect whether estrogen receptor is expressed in these cells, and it's indicator of the type of breast cancer that a patient may have. So if they have an estrogen a receptor positive breast cancer, that means that we can use endocrine therapy, which is really good news in a way because we have a type of treatment that is available for these patients, which is the majority of breast cancer cases. So this is great. Uh, but on the other hand, um, there's also some problems because not all patients respond to endocrine therapy. And for most patients, eventually, there is some sort of resistance that develops and they stop responding. So there is really a need to understand exactly how estrogen acts in breast cancer and what other treatments we can offer to prevent the development of resistance and to really make endocrine therapy curative as opposed to just something that uh, allows the disease to be more of a chronic nature. Yeah, you, I think you've really helped me understand how, like, how more basic science research can help pave the way to, you know, understanding how we can prevent resistance from happening and make these therapies more effective. Can you, maybe this is a bad question, but if you look forward two years, five years, ten years, where do you see your field going? Yeah, that, that's actually a very good question. It's not a bad question at all. So um, just, again, looking back, um, 
15 years ago um, when we talked about um, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, we only had a few options uh, for treatment. There are only a few endocrine therapies available. Tamoxifen uh, was the most established one uh, at the time. So this is a drug that prevents estrogen from binding to estrogen receptor. So it um, allows uh, the cells to become a little bit estrogen independent. Um, and there was also another uh, type of endocrine therapy called aromatase inhibitors. And these types of drugs prevent estrogen from being made in postmenopausal women. Um, but the problem is that eventually uh, women and other types of patients would become resistant to these drugs. And what happened in the last few years is that we developed two additional classes of drugs that are now FDA approved for estrogen receptor positive patients that really uh, are a type of a breakthrough. So one class is mTOR inhibitors. So mTOR is something that we work on in lab, actually, um, and it's one of the regulators of protein synthesis that we focus on so much. And mTOR inhibitors were FDA approved in uh, 2012 for estrogen receptor positive patients that are resistant to endocrine therapy. And they're now considered, if not the first line, but definitely the second line treatment. And then most recently, there is another class of drugs that was approved, and these are CDK4-6 inhibitors. So these are drugs that target the cell cycle, which is how cells divide. And they're also now considered as almost first-line treatment to be combined with endocrine therapy in estrogen receptor-positive women, and they really provide a huge benefit in terms of treatment. And that happened, as, as I said, it started in... 2012, which is just, what, six, six, seven years ago. So huge developments can be made on a really short time scale. And I think that going forward, we're going to uncover these additional, what we call druggable targets that we can develop drugs against and that we can combine with existing treatments to really derive huge benefit uh, for treatment. So it's, I'm optimistic, yeah. Speaking of huge developments, maybe not for the field, but in the last year, there have been some huge developments for you. You became the dean of the graduate school, um, a graduate school of basic medical sciences at New York Medical College. So maybe this is overdue, but congratulations. Um, Thank you, Joe. <laughs> so when you were just starting out as a scientist, did you did you want to reach this kind of leadership position? Did you want to become a dean, or did you just want to do great science? Uh, that's a good question. So I I really um, wanted to do great science, that, and I still want to do great science. So that that hasn't stopped. But when I was just starting out, I really wasn't sure which direction my career would take. I um, tried different things, and I think that is key for um, young scientists that are just starting their careers as postdocs and even assistant professors. I... Um, did research in lab as a PhD student, but I was also interested in pursuing other opportunities just to see what else uh, is possible. Um, I started teaching um, in the graduate school and also in the medical school in the first-year curriculum, 
because I wanted to get more teaching experience and to see if I liked it. Um, and that was interesting because my very first time I taught medical students, I got these really terrible evaluations. And I thought that was really, really bad and I'm never going to do it again. But I tried it again and I really tried to improve uh, because even though it seemed like mean comments, but they're really constructive in a way. And after four years of doing that, I got the best course evaluations, and one of the course coordinators even sent me a letter saying how amazing they were. So I really um, grew as, as a teacher and an instructor, so I developed that skill. Um, and I also looked at other opportunities. So when there are opportunities to take a course at the business school of, um, about marketing and management, I did that. Or if there was an opportunity to volunteer, I did that as well, just to see what kind of skills I, I am good at. Um, so I, when I started my first position, it was um, at a liberal arts college. Um, but uh, I had opportunity to teach, which I liked, and by then I knew I was good at. But the liberal arts college was associated with a medical school, so I also had a medical school appointment. So I was connected to a cancer center, and I could do regular research the way I wanted to do it. So I really had sort of my my hands in all the pots, and I could pursue my research, the best research I could do, and I can also um, teach, which I liked. And over time, I started pursuing uh, leadership opportunities as they came along, uh, participating in faculty committees and uh, committees that involve senior leadership at the university. And I really started to enjoy that, and I started uh, to see that um, having a hand in making decisions uh, that are uh, really advancing uh, the interest of the faculty and the students is really, really good, and it's really something that I wanted to do. And over time, my leadership responsibilities grew, and I realized that this is something that I would li really like to do more or less full-time as long as I can still do my research. So I started my position here at New York Medical College in the fall um, of 2018. Uh, and my responsibilities are clearly defined that I am the dean of the Graduate School of Basic Medical Sciences, but I am also an active scientist. I am a faculty member in the Department of Cell Biology and Anatomy, and I have my lab, and I wasn't willing to compromise on that as well. And you no doubt have so much free time, you don't know what to do with it. <laughs> maybe, yes, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not, but you know, it's it's time that is well utilized. Yeah. Um, and uh, I really learned over time that um, when, I, when I come to work, um, I there are meetings and there are things that need to be done, and there is very little downtime, but every minute is going towards a project that I feel is important and something that needs to be done, whether it's in my research lab or here at the dean's office. So even though it's busy, it's, it's very productive, so that's something that I really enjoy. And so I'm sure you, in your position as dean and, and professor running your own lab, you talk to young scientists all the time. And so I'm curious what you would say to a young scientist, maybe especially a young female scientist, who wants to reach a point in her career where she's, you know, has the chance to go for these leadership positions. How, how should they get there? Um, what would you tell them? 
Yeah, it's a it's a good question because everybody is different and um, everybody has their own personal situation and their own objectives for their family life as well. Uh, one of the questions that I hear all the time uh, from women in all stages of their career, starting from graduate students all the way to faculty members, is that when is a good time to have a family? Uh, when is it a good time to... Um, be be a mother it's it's a huge toll right it's an enormous investment in time and resources and how will it affect me professionally um and um there are no good answers for that but for me personally i feel that there is really no perfect time and women should prioritize their family life to the best of their abilities. Um, it's not a good time to have a kid when you're a graduate school, uh, a graduate student, nor is it perfect when you're an assistant professor going up for tenure. But uh, I had children both when I was a graduate student and assistant professor. Um, and yes, maybe it was a lot of work, but I can't um, imagine not doing that. Um, so I think that's one of the questions that I hear a lot. Another question that um, women and scientists uh, uh, in general ask is, how do I know I am making the right career moves, right? And the answer is that you, you don't know until you do it, and uh, you should just follow what you like. So if you like a particular aspect of science or if you like a particular aspect of leadership, just go for it um, because if you don't try it, you wouldn't know if you're good at it. Uh, and um, d don't be afraid to sort of climb that career ladder because no one else is going to tell you whether or not you can do it, right? So you kind of have to trust yourself to be able to do these things. That's great advice. Um, so what's next for you? Um, I don't know. I, I really am enjoying uh, my role here as the dean. Um, and um, again, there are various uh, school of thoughts on how long should the dean stay in their position. Um, one thing that is very reassuring is that the previous dean of the graduate school was here for 25 years. So if I like it, I could definitely see myself being a dean for a really long time. Um, and um, my predecessor went back to his position as professor of physiology, so he continues to do what he loves. And uh, I guess that is a goal for me as well. I will continue doing what I love. I'll continue doing what, what I feel will be important for me and also for the community. Uh, I really would like to make a difference for graduate education and graduate students here at New York Medical College. Um, and uh, we'll see. There's, there, again, we, we don't know until we try it. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing inside the lab and outside the lab um, and helping students along the way. And thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Joe.